Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets podcast. I'm John Human. I'm the editor. I'm here today with Stephen Wilmot, Companies Editor. Hello, John. Theron Mohammed. Hello, John. And Mark Robinson over in the control room. How are you doing, Mark? Oh, very well, John. And yourself? Yeah, yeah, not so good. Uh, <laughs> there we have it. As you well know. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, busy week on the markets. Lots of interesting stories. I'll tell you what, let's kick off with uh, Sky, Theron, because... That is quite an extraordinary story. The amount it's paid for uh, Premier League football. It, in fact, Sky and BT have paid between them for uh, for uh, Premier League broadcasting rights for the next three years. Sky playing paying the lion's share. So uh, it strikes me as an enormous amount of money, £11 million a match. And, you know, I, I've watched some games this season and I, I don't think many of them are worth £11 million. Can it be justified? Can that level of expenditure by Sky be justified? I mean... It's insane. It seems insane. Well, um, I think going into the auction, it was it was a must-win fixture for Sky. Yep. Uh, because Sky Sports is such an integral part of its offering. Mm. And essentially, BT has sort of been stealing ground from Sky. It got the Champions League rights from next from this year. No, I'm not not too bothered about those. I, I support West Ham, so uh, <laughs> Champions League fixtures are not that important to me. Um, yeah, sorry. Sorry, yep. sorry, sorry. And... and um, Essentially, Sky had to keep its current uh, proportion of the rights, otherwise it risks subscribers decamping to BT almost immediately. Mm. And BT Sport is actually free to its broadband subscribers. Indeed, I, I must admit, I, uh, I'm a BT broadband subscriber and I have BT Sport and I hardly ever watch it, despite the fact that there's football on it. But may, maybe that says more about me than uh, anything else. I think we describe it in the, uh, in the magazine as a Pyrrhic victory. So, it's, yeah. so you know, it's, got, it's got what it wanted, but it's had to pay through the nose for him. Can, can it actually justify, in terms of um, you know, potential returns you can expect from them, uh, that price. Because um, we've got this on a buy, haven't we? I mean, we, we yeah. like Sky. Yeah, I think we still do like Sky. And right. There are a couple sort of saving graces. So it's moving into mobile next year. And once you're getting your uh, mobile fixed line broadband and TV all from Sky, mm. it makes it incredibly difficult to switch to another provider. Well, I remember the old adage is, you know, content is king. Um, and, you know, Sky certainly has the content. I mean, uh I, I must admit, I don't, I don't watch a lot of football, um, but I used to watch a lot. Well, you watch West Ham. Yeah, which shut is... up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to watch a lot of golf, and you know, one, one of you know, Sky over the years has has kind of pretty much captured everything. I used to watch Formula One. You know, now Sky has half of that. Used to be on the BBC and ITV for a bit. Um, they've just won the Open. They've just won the rights to to host the Open or to host the uh, broadcasting of the Open from uh, 2017, I think that is. So, you know, there's not a lot of sport left on uh, on the BBC for free to air. So, you know, know, it could be, in my mind, a good move for Sky to consolidate. Um, You know, if if you're a sports fan, you have to buy Sky, basically. That's what it seems to me. Um, However... There's other, you know, let's 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 broaden this out. Yeah, in the telecom space, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a lot of big mergers. You know, is it all about content now, or you know, is it something else? There's there's other well, stuff afoot. Yeah. So the main trend is this uh, this quad play mm. thing, as I suggested, broadband, fixed line, mobile, and TV. And the idea is that if you're um, subscribing to all four from one person, you're gonna your churn rate is going to be lower, so fewer people are going to leave. And you can charge them more because you can spread the cost across four packages, so it doesn't look like you're getting charged as much as you really are. Yeah, yeah. And presumably, it would keep administrative costs down you know, per subscriber if you've got synergies. Are we talking about synergies? Yes. Synergies. synergies. Well, but actually, actually, Theron was just. We were discussing at the news meeting this morning that actually the evidence from other markets may be that 
quad play isn't the oh, be all. Cracked up to be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's an upcoming story, but uh, I think well in Spain it's a very developed quad play market, and Telefonica there has actually found that it hasn't had the advantages it expected it to, but it's yet to be seen if that'll be the case for Sky because Sky's been able to attract huge amounts of subscribers with its triple play packages without and raise costs at the same time. Mm. So Sky is very exp- very expensive. Sky, I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't buy it. You know, I buy my buy my broadband and um, I have I have a separate mobile contract with uh, uh, three, which is being which is buying O2. O2 yeah. which I also is quite I use three, and I'm worried they're going to raise it. I use the fifteen pounds a month, all you can eat data, which. It's pretty unbeatable. But then BT's buying EE, is that right? Yep. BT's buying EE, so I'm thinking, well, I've, I'm, you know, I have a BT broadband package now. You know, this this could be good news because now I can buy it all off BT, and get my mobile off them as well, yeah. and and 4G. I think you know, EE's 4G network is probably a bit hand off yeah, off, the, off threes. It's the number one in the UK. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, if you get a lot, a lot of competition, I would imagine. And and I would imagine, you know, you talk about raising prices. I would I would imagine there's going to be some pretty pretty cutthroat pricing competition in in the years ahead in, in in that respect well it's interesting you say that because some people are obviously complaining that this the the, the moves reduce the number of players in the market yeah, so I, don't, that, I don't i don't I just don't believe that but at the same time they're, they're all starting to compete with each other so yeah, it, yeah. it's it, that because of the 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 telecoms and media sectors kind of converging you've, mm. you've actually got more competition even though you've got sort of fewer players so it, is, it must be a policy nightmare because the the regulators um probably struggle to like get, take the bigger picture regulators struggling <laughs> with a bigger picture my goodness <laughs> who, would, who would have thought it um no i also but i also pay um six six pound a month now is i think for, for netflix which which actually i think comes with the bt package already so i'm thinking i'm paying too much anyway <laughs> so, but you don't you don't buy netflix that you bought something else didn't you Stephen? which we I, talked about a little while back, I, I used so. i used to purchase netflix and then concluded i wasn't getting but you bought something else what was the uh, uh well i subscribed to a Curated picture house film package <laughs> from from Mubi, which I, I don't I don't use as much as I um, yeah as I thought I might. So I might actually have to can that as well. But does, it, but does it have House of Cards? That's the question. It doesn't. <laughs> well, I, I must admit the the Netflix um, the Netflix productions are amazing, and I you know I, you know I was about to say content isn't perhaps king, but I think content is. King, I'm happy to pay six pound a month to Netflix, and uh, we started watching Better Call Saul this week, which. Um, it looks all right. Mm-hmm. Stop baking bad. Mm-hmm. Took a while. Took a while to uh, you know to warm up. But there you go. Um, okay, so Stephen, what else? Yeah, companies have started to uh, pick up their reporting this week. What's what's going yes, on? Yes, well, we had um, some of the big pharma names, obviously, um, Glaxo, um, Smith and Nephew, AstraZeneca, all reported this all in this week's magazine. So if you're a if you're hoping for a recovery there, um, then then this this week's magazine is a must read. Um, Astra, Astra. I, I must admit, I noticed Astra's results were pretty lackluster. Yes, and so were and, GSK's. Uh, but um, but Astra is, is particularly worrying given the the share defense price defense line that it put up uh, against the the Pfizer bid, which is that no, we we're great, we we're, we're well, good, we don't well, need uh, Pfizer. I, th- I think, and, that, and here are uh, some th- rubbish results. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think that's the main problem. It, it it took such a bullish management line last year that it it really struggled to. Um, come up with n- numbers that justified the the bullish the bullish tone really, um, so 
you know that we 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 have we have them on a hold um, because they they do look a bit overpriced given the the fact that they only even with this bullish tone they only expect to return to growth in 2017 so. Acqu- acquisition premium perhaps because i know uh, we, smith and nephew the uh, the well, uh, the smith- uh, artificial joints company and wound care company wound- uh, also reported this week and again pretty lackluster yeah uh, not, but, not, not, but not the shares are trading quite expensively yes i mean uh, i i guess People expect M and A to be a theme again this year. I mean, the, the U.S. GDP is picking up. You'd expect that to feed into animal spirits from American mm. chief executives. Um, the, the the no one Pfizer actually announced its own big bid, uh, own, own, uh, another big bid last week. So we don't expect it to come back from a- for Astra. Smith and Nephew has long been seen as a target for Stryker, uh, Mich- Michigan-based rival, um, and there were particularly before Christmas, there were rumours that it was planning an imminent bid, lots of newspaper stories, nothing's actually come of that, but yes, the the, the, the premium results. It's, it's hard to know what to do in these situations because, um, you know, one doesn't want to buy a shares in a company after it's got a, ha- had a bid or rumours of a bid because of the risk that the rumours dissipate and then suddenly the shares collapse 10 or 20%. Well, the old rule of thumb is, you know, buy, buy on the rumour, sell on the deal. Um so you know, if you think a company is going to get bid for, mm, yeah, I suppose depending on, depending, depending on how early you are, you have to be pretty early, pretty, pretty early <laughs> on in the, in the game. Um, um, we had actually an interesting bid story this week um, with Wrexham. The, oh yes, yeah. the largest, um, the, the biggest riser in our risers and fallers little column here on page seven. Yeah, they um, were, they, that was huge, huge. Yeah, yeah, up twenty two percent. Um, because it it was bid for by a, another well a US corporation. So this this does seem to this story that. Um, animal spirits in the in the US and the, and of course a strong dollar makes bidding for UK companies much more attractive. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, maybe maybe UK companies can uh, start looking over to Europe because over the, uh, to the, Europe, the, yes. the, the, uh, the sterling euro rate is incredible one one thirty five to a pound. Mm. Uh, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. If only I not going to Norway next week. Yeah. Well, you know. Anyway, to, to Lilyhammer. <laughs> talking of Netflix. So, but, but the Wrexham. So I don't know if some readers might not be familiar with with Wrexham because it's not a company we write about all that much and not much. Happens to rec- well, we do, whatever. No, we, we write about, we write about it at least twice a year, at least as twice, we were discussing at least twice a, a year. Yes, um, but uh, it makes the cans that um, um, you sell Coca Cola and other soft drinks in, and um, and lager, and lager. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, <laughs> so it's it's you know it's not a in a great business and that it's quite exposed to aluminium prices and it had a profit warning last November as a result. Uh, we actually had it on a tip, and we moved to hold back in November. As well. It was a buy. It was a successful. It was a buy. It, it, it was a successful. Pretty good tip. Actually, it was a pretty good tip. I mean, it's actually yeah, it, it churns out um, cash year after year. Yep. Um, just not with very high margins and sort of this unpredictability you get from making a, a low value product with ex- having to buy in commodity prices, but uh, commodities. But anyway, it's got a it's got a bid and. Um, um, you know, but but we we wouldn't say buy now because it's up twenty two percent, and mm-hmm. um, the the chance that you know you've only got eight percent upside to get to the bid price, um, I think it's eight percent, um, which doesn't seem like well, the risk that the bid goes away and they fall back twenty percent seems seems somewhat bigger than um, yeah yeah than the risk than than the upside you could get from kind of getting taken out. So okay. yeah, yeah. But if you were if you had followed our tip last year and were still in Wrexham and was still holding Wrexham, then uh, yeah, it was a good week. Indeed, wonderful. 
listen to the Investors Chronicle. Um, uh, Results-wise, um, Theron, let's, let's come back to you, because there was another result this week, which you wrote, which was uh, Arm, Arm Holdings, which uh, looked pretty pretty good. I mean, you know, we've, we've always felt, perhaps, that Arm is one of those stocks that always looks super expensive, but it keeps delivering, doesn't it? It yeah, keeps I- delivering. It's so difficult to justify buying it when it's mm. almost 40 times forward earnings. It makes imagination look cheap. But yeah, it offers 31 this, times earnings. But I don't, there, <laughs> so. There's no company like it in terms of... I mean, I was, when I spoke to the finance director, he's saying they have over 90% share of the Internet of Things market already, and they have 90% share in smartphones and dominant shares and tablets and Which, all these consumer electronics. So we talk about this Internet of Things quite a lot, or you talk about this Internet. So, so what is it? I mean, you know, what are we talking about here? So... In the home, it'd be connected fridges, so your fridge could see when you run out of stuff and send an order to Ocado to fill it up. Yep, sounds in brilliant. Your, <laughs> your car will be connected to the internet, so if you have an accident, um, the authorities will be notified. Really? Yeah, my car broke down car on Monday. drive itself, of course. My car broke down on Monday, uh, and I spent two hours sitting by the side of a road in the middle of nowhere in Est- the middle of Essex. So, uh, yeah, the internet of things would have helped a great deal had my car not been 11 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but he he also talks about um, things like uh, light bulb efficiency for street lamps and that kind of thing. I mean, I think he mentioned that on the Today program yesterday. Um, um, yeah, so... So it, it goes the, beyond yeah, the connected yeah. home. And I mean, obviously, there's yeah. a sexy retail angle here, yeah. but, but it's quite, it's a very, very, you know, widespread... Um, you know. so, was this like, so, uh, I guess, you know, Google bought, uh, was it? Uh, Nest, the, uh, yeah. the, the uh, heating, domestic heating company. Uh, thermostat the, and thermostat uh, smoke company. alarm. <laughs> Thermostats and smoke alarm. But yeah, so, so basically what, we, what we're saying is the whole, the world is becoming more interconnected and, and, and you know, rather than that being you looking stuff up on your, your iPhone, it's extending beyond that so that devices have a little bit of intelligence that are doing things that uh, save you doing them, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the, the, the predominant example this year is going to be the Apple Watch which was sort of herald possibly the rise of wearables in the mainstream. Haven't Google, uh, not Google, um, Samsung, they've, they've already launched watches, mm-hmm. haven't they? Yeah, but um, I get, none, none of the analysts are particularly convinced. They think this is something that Apple can again come to the market late. and Because with its brand, it can actually. Yeah. And, and, reta- and retail base, of course, that's the thing. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. but with uh, Arm, I mean, to get back to, go back to Arm, it, it, it's, um, I, I guess the, the issue is that it's, so, so much the de dominant technology play in the UK that uh, all fund managers who want to have exposure to that sector um, for portfolio balancing purposes will have this company and therefore it is it's always going to be expensive and why should private investors bother just for the sake of kind of portfolio balance with mm. but at the same time it always then, it continues to be traded you know it, it but they look at their share price I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's, true. It's, it's, it's true um, you know I, I think um, um, Bearville has written about uh, arm before um, and he's, he's been about it in the same context as Apple and he's described it as a dream stock okay mm. and it was one of his world's best companies yeah. wasn't it it was he's a bit he's a bit uh, fickle bearable. <laughs> but no when he talks about I mean Apple you know he talked about yeah it's a dream stock the valuation is ridiculous but the valuation of Apple is not, not ridiculous it's not that bad at all <laughs> um, but, but you know can it keep delivering you know, arm I, I guess falls it can it keep delivering is, is it really that good that it can that it can just keep churning out the the, the, the the returns, the profits in the way that it doesn't. You know, well, you've got to look at that market share. Intel's tried to muscle in and failed. Intel has failed against ARM. It's an, it's an extraordinary company, really. Um, 
Well, what's interesting this year is that basically with ARM, they get licensing revenue and then mm. that flows into royalty revenues once the microchips start being made and put into products a few years down the line. So the, huge, the success of the Apple iPhone 6 is going to be a great tailwind for them this year. So there are a few factors in their favor. So we're not even seeing that yet, no. I guess, in, in ARM's results. No, that's not there at all. So, and, so, and I guess this is what people are paying for. This is why the shares are expensive too, because we know that the future is going to be pretty Recur good. Recurring revenue streams, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. one of the concerns was the slowdown in the premium smartphone market, and Apple's shown there's plenty of growth still there. Mm, if you're Apple. If you're Apple. Not necessarily <laughs> if you're Samsung. Amazing. Um, actually, Apple is one of the companies, you wrote a little bit for me this week uh, for the cover feature as well, which I think is interesting, because not only is this a company that's delivering enormous... So the cover feature this week, um, before I go on, is uh, about where, where we find income in, in a world that, you know, in, in which uh, interest rates are trending towards virtually nothing uh, and not likely to rise for some time, and growth is becoming increasingly hard to come by. So we looked at some, some companies and some funds that we thought were, were you know, good bets for, for such an environment, and Apple is one of the, the companies we looked at because it's starting to pay dividends too. Um, yes. It's got a lot of cash. <laughs> so I think in 2012 it started paying quite a small dividend, mm, and the, mm. you, at the moment you wouldn't buy it for the dividend, you buy it for the, the cheap stock and the potential of the company, the huge it uh, is cheap, dominance. Isn't it? What, is it, what is it trading yeah. on now? So. About I think it was... 11, 12? Without cash, about 12, I think. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And, yeah, you mentioned Rexham earlier, churning out cash. So these, are kind of the, these are the kind of businesses we're, we're kind of interested in. You know, if you're an income investor, look at those businesses with excess, ca excess cash. So it's a house builders has been a yeah, great Yeah, house builders is an interesting, you know, like, like Apple, you wouldn't think it would be a company. It's not a company that's historically been associated with cash returns. Mm. Um, but for, you know, it's different from Apple and the pressures that have, you know, because it met basically the house builders messed up so badly in the financial crisis, they're desperate to prove to shareholders that they're, um, that, that they have cash discipline and so they're giving it all back. And it, it, I mean, yeah, Persimmon, I think, is the, was the company that Jonas chose to, um, yeah, it is, for, yeah. for, 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 for the income feature. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the forward yield is, is, you know, pretty impressive. I wouldn't want to, uh, quote a figure somewhere around 6%, Jonas says, um, this is the, including special dividends. Including specials. Yeah. Persimmon um, plans to return the equivalent of 620p a share over eight years, mm. giving an annual yield of somewhere around 6%. I mean, and it's, and it's credible given the, the dynamics of the business. So. Indeed. So, Mark, you, uh, you were a little bit more uh, brave in your pick for the, uh, for the uh, income shares. You went for Shell. And, you know, given what's going on in the, uh, the oil and gas sector, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty bold call, Robbo. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's based fundamentally on their uh, cash position, their their ability to uh, generate uh, free cash flow. I mean, uh, I think last year it was something in the region of uh, 25 uh, billion. That was based on uh, some sales revenue, obviously, and we're unlikely to see that uh, that level again this year. Obviously, uh, they're not hiving off as many assets as they have in the past. But we think uh, compared to um, the other majors in, in that space, it, it's, it can sustain that dividend. And let's face it, they, they haven't sort of uh, marked that back since 1945. It's a record that they're adamant uh, about, you know, about maintaining. Mm. So, uh, and in fact, in fact um, uh, Ben Van Burden said this week, he was explicit in the fact that this is almost sort of sacrosanct where, where the company's concerned. So, it's they're, worth so they're not going to do a tallow then? 
No, they're not going to do a Tullo. There's no, there's, well, I mean, Tullo's got its own problems as well. Actually, I meant, I meant to... So Tullo reported this week and it can it can its dividend. Yeah, it, it had to take a, an impairment around about $2.5 billion. Uh, wow. That, that had been sort of uh, foreshadowed in uh, in January. But um, they've got some operating problems as well. And, and they're looking now, they seem to be focusing almost entirely on their 10 project in uh, Ghana, which will increase their um, their output from in West Africa to about 100,000 barrels a day. That's a that's about a, a one third increase from the the current level. It's it's worth pointing out here, isn't it, um, Mark, that um, Rio Tinto reported results today and increased its dividend. Now, of course, the miners have gone through um, two three years of of cutting back their capex. Well, and, yeah, and, and the and the fruit is now being seen, and that they they have the free cash flow to support dividend increases. Now, Shell. Um, you know, just to get back to the that income story, um, you'd you'd think that okay, it's going to take some time, but it, the it, cutbacks it, that they're making to capex now should eventually feed into. They're, they're, they're the feeling some benefits already, but this year is going to be a little bit difficult for yeah, them. I mean, course, unless yeah. we get the recovery uh, in oil prices, um, the point with them is they've got fairly uh, low debt, something like fourteen percent at the moment. They're highly cash Gear, generative. Gearing is fourteen percent. Yes. 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 That's, Sorry, let's be specific. Yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> uh, and so uh, relative to the other players in the sector, they're certainly um, well positioned to, to maintain that. I, I took a look at Rio today, as you mentioned, and uh, and bearing in mind that iron ore prices have more or less halved since this time last year, uh, an underlying sort of nine uh, percent, well, a nine percent uh, decline in underlying earnings is a pretty good result for them. It, it missed the city consensus, but. On top of their cash flows, they were, they were able to sort of increase that dividend by 12%. And they've also announced a, a $2 billion share buyback. And they've cut their uh, and they cut their debt by, well, their net debt by a third. So that was a pretty good performance by Rio. Part of this is down to their, um, the scale benefits that they're uh, accruing now. They actually managed to increase their seaborne shipments by a, a fifth in, in one year, which is extraordinary, really. Um, so well, it, it is considering what's going on in China, which we've also covered. Well, yeah, they're, they're, uh, about thirty-eight percent of their revenues are generated in the People's Republic, but they're, they're a low-cost producer, Rio, and so I, I think unless China reverts to an agrarian economy overnight, I think they're in a pretty good shape for the future. I mean, they're they're, they're going to experience difficulties, obviously, across a, a range of commodities, which are, the, the outlook is generally so, negative. So, what are they, are they, are they taking share? They're taking market share then from higher cost producers. Well, exactly. And a lot of high cost producers in Australia have actually pulled out of the market, you know, smaller companies, obviously. So we've sort of been fairly consistent in this. We could see the benefits since Sam Walsh came in in the beginning of 2013. His twin. Are you blowing your own trumpet here? No, not at all. I mean, the collective we. Sam Walsh came in at the beginning of 2013 and he was explicit in his intention to um, reform the balance sheet because, uh, you know, un- under Tom Albanese, the, the company had been, well, profligate, I guess, any way you could describe it. And so he, you can see the benefits coming through now as well. And um, the, the twin approach as well was expanding their operations in the Pilbara to, uh, you know, to generate scale benefits. And they're coming through also. So, I mean, while they're... While they're faced with the same problems as everyone else within that within the sector. They're there again. They're sort of better place to to see it through. Mm, well, I mean, 
the thing that worries me about mine, and you know, I, I can see these arguments, and I can see the argument that you know uh, the oil and gas sector is getting itself into a similar um, shape in terms of its capital, capital discipline, um, but sentiment is not going to get any better. And we've got a piece this week that that Graham wrote. Graham's not here today, unfortunately, um, on China, and China, China's looking a bit, bit, bit ropey. Yeah, well, exactly. They're, they're talking about 7% growth through uh, this year. and uh, well, it, it seems to be falling all the time every time I look at it. The, 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 uh, the growth expectation seems to be pared back a little bit more. Well, I? actually, you know, Graham's, Graham's piece was resolutely downbeat. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, I, I guess it's, it's, a relative, it's a relative factor. We mentioned, we, you know, a few weeks back that, you know, China could not maintain that level of growth. Yeah. Level, but he's talking about, I mean, there's a figure here, uh, and he's talking about um, uh, a, a composite index of factors, including things like rail freight volumes and electricity consumption. You know, they suggest, if you put them together, that the economy is actually growing at almost half the rate that, that, it, that its headline figure suggested is. I mean, this, that's, that's yes. quite a big difference. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the, the rate there is given as 3.9%. Which is quite worrying, but I mean, this, these are these, these are sort of standard measures. But I, I, mm. I would just, I'd just like to know the way that they're compiled. This is the, um, this is compiled by Thomson Reuters and uh, Fathom Consulting. Uh, well, so, they're pretty reliable. I mean, Thomson Reuters. I mean, we use their data. They, they, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's just a different way of. Uh, Fathom is the contrarian among economic. Uh, yeah, we like contrarians. Got, <laughs> our own economist is a contrarian. You know, I mean, uh, Chris Dillo is not your your average economist. It's no. the way we like to do things. So, I mean, I like to pay attention to contrarians. Absolutely. Um, because at least they, you know, at the very least, they point in the direction of things that you may want to consider as a risk. Not have thought of. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. But you know, so anyway, the, I mean, it's a worry. I mean, Mark, we spoke. Um, I mean, we spoke maybe last week, week before your your dad. Over Uh-oh. in over in Oz had, had you know witnessed himself yes, a slowdown in, yes, in shipping. looking wistfully out to sea just the, <laughs> the number of uh, sort of uh, coal tankers that uh, uh, sailing out from uh, Newcastle Harbour have dropped appreciably, according to. Uh, well, he, he actually got a I'm log <laughs> <laughs> yes. we, bring, we bring you the global news here at the Investors Chronicle podcast. <laughs> I mean, we, did, we did mention last week as well that the, the Chinese authorities had, had cut the uh, the reserve ratio for the banks as well, and that, that's a pretty clear signal that uh, they're trying to uh, well stop on the one part uh, outflows from the economy and also trying to I- increase uh, lending yeah so, uh, i don't know I, I, I mean the, the other point graham makes and i think it's, it's a very uh, very pertinent one is uh the the currency strength as well which you know may, may be hampering its its competitiveness well yeah um, they're, they're, you know it's pegged to the dollar it's it's you know dollar's been strong and and we know that elsewhere in the world currencies are tanking against the dollar it's, there, are, there are potential, you know, policy decisions that can be made in China to, to perhaps stimulate the economy. But they don't really want to because this is all part of their plan, right? They want to yeah, plans. Re- rebalance it. Plans. <laughs> plans are there to be um, changed. Adjusted. Yeah. And adjusted. Indeed. So I, I guess anyway, you know, China, Chinese statistics, we, we don't really know what. What what is actually happening there anyway? Um, so you know, three point nine percent, seven point eight percent. Who who the hell knows? But at least we know about um, what our, what our companies listed in the UK are up to, don't we, Stephen? Don't we? Well, absolutely. or do we? Well, exactly. And you you bring up a pertinent point, um, which you're obviously making reference to your uh, editorial, um, your leader here, um, and um, yeah, we we had some engagement from a concerned reader. Um, this week, um, who who who's wh- who was worried that um, the 
abolition of the quarterly reporting requirement, mm. um, which is part of the... Um, Was. Yeah. Disappeared last year. Yeah, indeed. The, the, the whole timetable for its abolishment was accelerated. Was, was, was accelerated, yeah. Very quickly and quietly, it has to be said. Um, and, yeah, so, so companies no longer have to report quarterly... Um, no longer have to give... IMSs. Indeed, in, yeah. So, so you would know these as the interim management statements, generally speaking. And most companies, in fact, all companies would, would have provided them. Um, some in more depth than and others. others. And, uh, but now they no longer need to. And, and this reader was very concerned that um, a particular holding of his, you know, he'd, he'd have to wait for four four months maybe before he got any update on trading. And he was he would be concerned that, you know, things would have been going to pot while... Um, Effectively, he had nothing. He, he knew nothing about it. Yeah. And of course, the question then is: Does anyone else know anything about it? And I suppose the concern for a retail investor is that they'd be having, you know, fund managers would be having one one on one briefings with the management, you know, being given a um, something of a steer out the door, while you know, private investors would be left <coughs> holding on to. Um, that would be illegal, stock. would it not? Um, well, no. When they're not in closed period, they can. Well, this is the yes, this is the but, point. Price sensitive information price has sensitive, to be disclosed to the market. Price sensitive information, and that's obviously what the previous regulation of these of disclosures has been based on. This idea that anything needs to be disclosed, and and and, and therefore you have quarterly updates so that there's less of a risk that price sensitive information seeps out. Yeah, exactly. To to some people and not everyone else. So yeah, I mean there 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 is a concern there. Um, at the same time. The rationale for abolishing IMSs, I think, was a very valid one, which, which was to encourage long-term investing. Which was made by John Kay. Which was made by John Kay in the Equity Market Review um, of, maybe, was it 2012? Oh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> it was yeah. like a long time after, ago. After the financial crisis, they were worried that people had become too short-termist in their thinking. And uh, they... And one of his recommend, and it was a, it was a very, it was a beautifully written and very interesting. John Kay is a wonderful writer. Exactly, he's a, a, a very intelligent man. It's, it was a wonderfully uh, yeah, written sort of analysis of the the problems of the UK stock market. But it was, it was criticised at the time for being short on conclusive recommendations, which um, says something about his background in academia and journalism, I suppose. Um, so, so we don't disagree with the principle. But of, one of them uh, was. We want to. We, yeah, we, one of we them was, the believe yeah. in long termism. Right, absolutely, and we, you know, that there is a reason why we don't cover. IMS is apart from um, through you know brokers' views sometimes and um, and we, tip so, updates. So we you cover know. we we commit to cover. Let's let's restate this as yes. we often do. We commit to cover every interim result every half year and every full year of yeah. FTSE 350 companies. Exactly because it's I mean you know the, the worst thing you can do for your portfolio is to act on every every three months. Um, yeah. And, uh, and 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 you know we have and IMSs historically have not provided anywhere near the same level of financial detail that the half year. Yeah, I, I mean, as year. as the um, CFA Society pointed out, actually, that I mean, there are broadly three types of quarterly statement. There's the there's the US style quarterly earnings, which very few companies do. The, arm, arm actually, arm. Basically, it's companies which have significant US investor bases. So some technology companies. GSK and Astra, um, Unilever. So, I think Unilever. Yeah, pharma companies, decent. basically, yeah, the really big or global companies or ones which yeah. are in a sort of sector which is dominated by the US, like pharma or tech. Um, and then there are those that 
give quite a lot of information but don't actually give you an earnings number no numbers um, really. which is which yeah which is most companies yeah and then there are the the smaller ones which say next to nothing apart from yeah, everything's going fine and you know p.s we wouldn't we wish we didn't have to do this um <laughs> it's sort of the sub the subtext and and and, and so the cfa side you I mean, I think logically enough points out that those companies will probably stop doing this, but the rest will probably continue in the way that they yeah. they have been. Well, that's quite interesting because we... we uh, so companies also tend to report pre-close as well. So they'll give you a little update as they go into their close period, as yeah. they prepare to release their financial results. Which, um, as you and, pointed and, out... And we, we, we struggled to find out whether that was actually a legal obligation. To, yeah. And I don't think it is. No. Um, we couldn't work it out. There didn't doesn't seem to be any obligation. No. So, but they do it anyway, and and, and this was the point that we were gonna we're making was that actually you know whilst the obligation to release uh, quarterly financial statements or quarterly reports is gone, companies do generally speaking want to be transparent with their shareholders and right. will continue to communicate with them yeah. as as effectively as they can. And the, I mean the, the CFA worries that. Um, companies might have more volatile share prices um, if they stop giving updates because but, they're worried about unscheduled updates. Because exactly, which is what they yeah, will happen anyway. I mean, you know, you know, this this consultation statement says companies that do not that do stop giving interim updates run the risk of increased share price volatility and a higher cost of capital. Well, I would agree. Well, I would agree with which, that. Which which might be true, but then if that's the case, and you know, surely these highly paid management teams can spot that's the case and then yes. just give an update. It's, mm. I mean, it, it's only the that no one's banning them from making updates. It's just the obligation to make updates that's been removed. Well, indeed, I, 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 the point I think the CFA Society made very well in their um, the CFA Society of the UK. Uh, who gave us their publication of the award very recently, uh, I hasten to add. Um, the, the point they made, made very well, I think, is that um, is, is the difference um, in the information you get as a private investor as you would if you were an institutional investor. And I think, you know, they, they, they refer to kind of, the, what is it, kind of what was it, the nudges and winks of the, uh, the, the management on a roadshow type thing. Uh, what is it? Can you dig it up? If you can. Um, but I, no, I think that's a very pertinent point. You know, I, I once sat on that side of the, the equation, and it's true. It does, you know... Whilst they're not necessarily revealing inside information, you know you know what how they feel management when you're sitting there as a fund manager sitting there on as as a broker watching watching the communication between a company and a fund manager, yeah, and and you know that worries me. But but what I would say is I I would hope um, that companies actually use this to their advantage because now they have four and a half months of the, of the year in which they you know are not obliged to say anything to the stock market. But perhaps perhaps we can um, improve. The way companies uh, report to their private shareholders, their retail shareholders, you know, perhaps perhaps a capital markets day for retail shareholders is what some of these companies should be doing anyway. Um, and you know, the, the the obligation to report four times a year, uh, and sometimes with limited value, you know, how much value is that really adding to your you know your investment your investment knowledge? I, I'm not sure it is. As I say in my editorial, I would urge private investors to to basically you know, if you're worried, you're not getting information from the companies that you invest in petitioned them because uh you know they, they they do tend to listen they do tend to listen um and in fact philip ryland has written a, an interesting feature this week on uh, corporate transparency based on a report by a by an organization called transparency international and actually when i look down the list and it's a global list uk companies are very transparent relative to, to their international peers 
I think we, you know, we, we, we have a good market. And I, you know, I think uh, we should, we should, we should recognise that. I think that yeah, our companies are generally pretty good, mostly. So, okay. Um, so thank you, uh, Stephen. Thank you, Theron. Uh, and thank you, Mark. As I said, lots, uh, lots been going on this week and uh, there's lots in the magazine, more than we can do justice to in uh, in, a, in a half an hour podcast. Actually, it's a bit more than that. Sorry. So uh, thank you for listening. Go out and buy the magazine. Plenty more in it. As usual, there's plenty in the funds and personal finance section, which we rarely get to discuss on on this podcast. And and actually, what we are going to be doing in the very near future is, is uh, launching a dedicated funds and, and personal finance podcast. So uh, we'll keep you posted. But uh, that, that should be good, too. Some really good stuff there. The reader portfolios in particular are incredibly popular. And uh, this week, we, we actually revisit a guy whose portfolio we reviewed a few years back. And... Um, He's 39-year-old with far too much money, and it's sickening. (laughs) (laughs) And there you go. Of course, there's also Woodford's new fund this week. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Lots to read about there. Absolutely. So, yeah, anyway, 4.50, all good news agents and supermarkets, of course. So uh, go pick that up, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.